This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to a teaching from our series on the topic of worship. This teaching was recorded live at Eitz Chaim Messianic Fellowship. So we're going to be looking at uh, the subject of worship once again. This is part three of our series so far. And today, I want to look at the sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus. Maybe not the first thing you'd think of talking about when we're on the subject of worship, but uh, hopefully it will make sense as we go here. So to start, I want to look at a couple passages from the book of Psalms. I want to start with Psalm 65, verses 1 to 4. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along or you can listen as I read it. So Psalm 65, verses 1 to 4. Praise is due you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. There's a bunch of cool things in these verses, but one of them is just the uh, the longing and adoration that there is for the temple courts that we see here. Uh, this this idea of of bringing our vows to God. These are, these would be offerings that you have vowed to God, and uh, coming before God, having our sins, our iniquities atoned for and being brought near to be in God's courts, the holiness of the temple. Um, Let's look at another one. Psalm 42, verses 1 to 4. By the way, Psalm 42 and 43 are like one, one long song. You can see that there's this refrain that is repeated. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my Savior and my God. That gets repeated a bunch of times through this psalm and, and then at the end of Psalm 43. So this is like one big long psalm. So we're going to look at two sections here. Uh, first of all, Psalm 42, starting in verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And then down to Psalm 43, starting in verse 3. Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. So, I mean, we see in this psalm, this is by the sons of Korah, we see the, the sons of Korah expressing this longing for God's house, this longing for the sanctuary, for the temple, and, uh, and longing to be there. You know, it's, it's written as, as though from a place of 
lack of water, right? You know, like this deer panting for flowing streams, my soul's thirsting for you, O God. Um, kind of like in Psalm 63, we see the same sort of imagery where the, the psalmist is, is, feels like they're in a desert, right? You feel like you're in a desert and you're longing for, for, for that time. And, and remembering, so both remembering back in the past times when, you know, I remember how I would go with the, with the crowd, with the throng of people, of worshipers in, in procession up to the temple, and, and then longing for that, longing for that experience of going to the temple. Let's look at one more example from the Psalms. We see this over and over again in the Psalms, but here's, here's just one more example. This is maybe the most well-known example from some of the um, popular songs that are, are done today. Psalm 84, again by the sons of Korah. This seems to be a theme with them. Psalm 84, starting in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Uh, verse Down to verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And jump down to, to verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in tents of wickedness. So this is saying it's, it's better to spend one day in the temple than a thousand elsewhere. This, this is the kind of longing that the authors of these psalms have for, for God's temple. Okay, so, so what is this? What is this longing for the temple that's going on? Um, Hopefully, by the time we get to the end of this teaching, we'll have unpacked that just a little bit. Um, don't pretend that we'll be able to to do justice to, to these beautiful psalms, but um, I want us to explore what that meant for these psalmists, what that meant for, for David, for the sons of Korah, for these people who are longing to be in God's courts. What does that mean? So, let's turn to the book of Leviticus. We're going to spend a little bit of time here in Leviticus chapter 1 and uh, take a look at what this teaches us about worship. Let's start by reading Leviticus 1 verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And goes on. We'll, we'll carry on in just a minute, but let's stop there. Have you ever read the descriptions of the sacrifices in Leviticus as a manual of worship? My guess is most of us haven't. <laughs> That's not something we usually think of, right? I mean, we have to admit, for us, especially for us here in North America, the idea of killing animals is very separated from what we think of as worship, right? Uh, you know, like imagine 
a worshipful experience in your mind. And then think of adding in slitting the throat of an ox in the middle of that. That just doesn't, that's foreign to us. That's not something that seems meaningful or, or relevant or, or anything like that, right? Yet sacrifice is a universal religious impulse as humans. Uh, you look at most ancient religions around the world involve sacrifice, right? And it's, this, it's like a human instinct, that there's, there's something about um, slaughtering an animal as a way of, of expressing worship, right? More than that, if we believe the Bible, which we do, we have to accept the fact that the God we serve is a God who commanded his people to worship him through animal sacrifice. And that, that can be hard sometimes for followers of Yeshua to come to terms with because because it's so foreign to us. Um, And I think a lot of followers of Yeshua have an aversion to this idea of animal sacrifice because Yeshua fulfilled the sacrificial system, which is often misinterpreted to mean that Yeshua abolished the sacrificial system and the Torah and all the laws of the Old Testament, which is based on a misunderstanding of, of passages in the apostolic scriptures, especially the book of Hebrews. I think there's the book of Hebrews has been widely misread. Um, but the reasoning goes that since Yeshua is our sin offering, which is true, it would therefore be wrong for a follower of Yeshua to ever offer a sacrifice. I, I want to point out a couple problems with that conclusion. First of all, that's not what the apostles believed. Take a look at the book of Luke. Um, You don't have to turn there, but uh, if you can follow along with me, the book of Luke begins and ends in the temple, right? It begins with Zechariah the priest in the temple. And then what happens right after Yeshua is born? They take him to the temple, right? As soon as Yeshua is 12 years old, where is he? He's in the temple. He's like constantly wanting to be in the temple, right? And then the climax of Yeshua's ministry is him in the temple. And eventually it is um, right after being in the temple that he is crucified. How does the book end? I need to read these verses because some people wouldn't believe me if I didn't actually read it (laughs) from what it says. So uh, he led them out as far as Bethany. This is Yeshua took them outside the city. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. They were continually in the temple, just like Yeshua was, was constantly wanting to be in the temple. They were wanting to be in the temple, right? And then you go through the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins, the believers are in the temple, right? Again, they're in the temple. Again, they're in the temple. They're going up to the temple. They're constantly meeting and gathering in the temple. It says they met from house to house and in the temple courts, right? We, I think we have this misconception that the believers were always gathering in home fellowships, but that's not the case. They're gathering in synagogues, and they're gathering in the temple, and they're gathering in homes. <laughs> so it's all three together, right? We see this over and over again throughout the book of Acts. And, and then the book of Acts climaxes with Paul 
going up to the temple. And that's where he, just following the same pattern as what happened to Yeshua, Paul gets bound and then imprisoned um, from being in the temple courts. But uh, we also see Acts 6 verse 7 says, even a large number of priests came to the faith. Now let me ask you a question. When these priests started following Yeshua, did they say, oh, I can't be a priest anymore. I can't offer sacrifices anymore. I can't serve as a priest. I'm a, I'm, I'm a Christian now. I don't do those Old Testament things. No, that's not what they said. Of course not, right? When the, uh, when the believers are gathering continually in the temple, were they boycotting the sacrifices? No, of course not, right? And Acts 21 is explicit about the fact that Paul went up to the temple and offered sacrifices. Paul, this is a mature believer. This is not Paul before he was a believer. This is Paul when he's a mature believer, goes up to the temple and offers sacrifices. So apparently for the early believers, the early followers of Yeshua, there is no contradiction between believing Yeshua is my atonement for sin and still participating in the sacrificial system of the temple. Just like the, the psalmists that we read, these passages in the book of Psalms, the, the early Yeshua and his followers longed to be in the temple. They loved the temple. Okay, so that's reason number one. Reason number two. <laughs> Another common misconception is that all the sacrifices were only about sin. If you go through Leviticus 1 through 7, uh, describes a number of different types of, of sacrifices. We'll look more at that in just a second. Uh, so you've got burnt offerings, you've got peace offerings, you've got grain offerings, you've got sin offerings, and you've got guilt offerings. Only those last two deal explicitly with sin, right? Burnt offerings, peace offerings, thanksgiving offerings, these are sacrifices of praise. They're ways to express praise to God. They're not ways to, to try to deal with sin, right? If you think of the sacrifices as only about forgiveness, you're going to misunderstand a lot of references to sacrifices in the Tanakh, right? You know, references to bringing a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, um, these sorts of things. It's not just about, about forgiveness for sin. That's, that's an important part, but that's not the only aspect of the sacrificial system. Okay, reason number three why the stereotypical conventional view of sacrifices doesn't, doesn't quite work is that there are prophecies in scripture that say that during the messianic kingdom, the temple will be rebuilt and the sacrifices reinstated. Um, I'm not going to try to argue and dispute different eschatological scenarios here. Uh, we could maybe do that another time, but we see prophecies that there's going to be a temple and there's going to be sacrifices offered in, in the millennial kingdom. And just a reminder, it would be a transgression of Torah to attempt to offer a sacrifice today without the temple, right? If I went into my backyard and I got a goat and slit its throat and built an altar and offered a sacrifice in my backyard, that would be a sin, according to Torah. The Torah says there's only one place we, we may offer sacrifices, and that is in the temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, right? But when the temple is rebuilt, rebuilt, 
what should be our attitude as believers toward it? This is an important question I think we need to ask, right? And I would like to suggest that since Yeshua loved the temple, and since his apostles and his earliest followers all loved the temple, it would be appropriate for us to love the temple as well. All this to say, I think we need to have a more positive attitude towards sacrifices. As followers of Yeshua, we believe that the sacrifices point to Yeshua, right? If that's true, we ought to know something about the sacrifices and how they work, right? The, sacrifice, the sacrificial system is super relevant for understanding what Yeshua did for us when he died for our sins. If we don't understand the sacrificial system, we're not going to understand what Yeshua did for us. So, that's one reason why, as followers of Yeshua, sacrifices are important. Another reason, at the same time, I think the sacrificial system and the temple service has a lot to teach us about worship. I think that the, the sacrifices, like I said, are, are about more than just sin. They are also about praise and thanksgiving and about fellowship with God. So let's go back to Leviticus chapter 1. So this verse, uh, well, these two verses, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Well, let's start in verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, in Hebrew, that's um, when someone yakriv korban, when someone brings near a korban. So the word translated as offering here in in English, is the Hebrew word korban. Uh, korban, yakriv and korban, the, the, both the verb and the noun come from the same root, the root karav, which means to draw near. In Hebrew, karov is a uh, preposition. It means near or an adjective, uh, near. So, so a korban is something brought near, right? The English word sacrifice and even the word offering, it doesn't, doesn't quite mean the same thing as this Hebrew word korban. Because you think of the word sacrifice, it, it's, it, the focus of the word sacrifice in English is on giving up something, right? You're, you're make, you, know, you make a sacrifice, you're, 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 you're giving up something valuable, something of value, right? There, there is an element of that, obviously, in, in the in the offerings mentioned here in Leviticus, but that's not what the word korban really means. Even the word offering is more like, you know, you're, you're giving some sort of tribute or, a, a, you know, a, a gift meant to, like, pacify someone. It kind of has that connotation in English. Well, that's not the connotation the Hebrew word korban has. Korb, korban is, is about drawing near. Korban is something that you bring near to God, and it's also something that enables you as the worshiper to draw near to God. If I could paraphrase, this is all about encountering God. That's what Korban is all about. It's about encountering God. We need some context here for these verses, Leviticus 1, (laughs) because they come right after the end of the book of Exodus, right? The book of Exodus ends on a cliffhanger, In Exodus chapter 40, this is after chapters and chapters of explanation of uh, the tabernacle, 
Moses is given all these instructions about how to build the tabernacle. Uh, and by the way, this is what he was doing for those 40 days and nights on top of Mount Sinai, right? He wasn't getting more laws and commandments and things like that up there. He's learning about the tabernacle the whole time he's up there, right? The Ten Commandments were given before he went up the mountain. The, the covenant code of uh, Parashat Mishpatim, Exodus 23 and following, that was given before he goes up the mountain. Then finally, at the end of Exodus 24, he goes up the mountain and it's all about the tabernacle. So he's up there 40 days a night experiencing the heavenly temple, the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly worship service. And God tells him, look at the pattern that I'm showing you. Make that on earth, right? And so then, then the next chapters show how, how he does that. He gets Bezalel and Aholiab and the other guys involved. The Israelites all offer their, their, their possessions to help make this, the gold and the embroidery and all this stuff. And they, they put it together. And, and then chapter 40 describes how, you know, they're, they're putting every piece in place, setting up the tent, setting up the courtyard. They've got the altar in place. They've got the laver in place. Everything's ready. And then comes the moment of truth. Is it going to work? Because all this time, God's manifest presence, you know, the cloud of glory, this, this consuming fire by night is on top of the mountain. The goal is to get God's manifest presence to come down into the tabernacle so it can accompany Israel through the wilderness. And what happens when we get to the end of Exodus 40? Look at verse, Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the, the uh, God's dwelling presence and glory manifested in visible form. This is something we've not experienced, right? Don't, don't get me wrong. It, it is possible to experience God's presence today through his Holy Spirit within us. Uh, even this morning, we sang about being in God's presence, right? But I'd like to suggest that even our most powerful encounters with God's presence today are not the same as what it would have been like to experience the visible presence of God in the tabernacle or the temple. So the book of Exodus ends with this amazing success. It worked. The tabernacle's a success. God's presence is filling it, right? It's visible. It's tangible. Everyone can see it. But there's also a problem. No one can go in. It says even Moses couldn't go in, right? What good is it to have God dwelling in the midst of his people if they can't even meet with him? This is, this is the dilemma that we have when we get to the end of the book of Exodus. And what does God do? Leviticus 1, 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Vayikra Adonai, vayidaber al Moshe, me'ohel mo'ed. He called from within the tent of meeting out to Moses. That's grace right there, right? Moses can't even enter to talk with God, 
but God calls to him from within and explains how his people can approach him. And how can Israel approach this holy God? The answer is korban. Korban is how Israel can encounter God. Having God in your midst is a dangerous thing. A holy God when you are an unholy people. And so, so the answer that God gives, this, this expression of grace, God's the initiator here, right? He's the one that initiates this worship. God speaks out from within the tent of meeting, calls to Moses and tells him, when any one of you wants to bring near something brought near, a korban, wants to encounter the Lord, you shall bring for your korban livestock from the herd or from the flock. A korban is how you can encounter a holy God. Let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of sacrifice. How, how does this work, right? So if we continue on here, verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that it may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Let's stop there for a second. I want to pick apart these different components that are going on here. So one of, the, one of the first steps is the laying on of hands, right? It says, he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering, right? This is, we, we see this, this imagery of laying on of hands, simicha, the Hebrew word, right? Uh, throughout the scriptures, when you lay hands on, on something or someone, you are investing that with your authority, with your identity, so that animal becomes, for all intents and purposes, you in the, for the purpose of this transaction that's about to take place, right? That animal becomes your proxy. You're investing it with your identity. And then it says, um, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Um, kafar in Hebrew, kafar, uh, kippur, kaporet. These are all related terms related to what we translate as atonement. Atonement is, is, when we see this word, we immediately think, oh, well, it's about forgiveness of sin. But atonement is more than just forgiveness of sin. It's related to the Hebrew verb kafar, which means to cover. It's a covering, right? So think of it this way. God's presence is powerful and dangerous. You know, imagine like a nuclear reactor sort of thing. You can't just walk into a nuclear reactor without the proper covering, protective equipment, right? It's the same sort of thing going into God's presence in the tabernacle slash temple. You can't just waltz in to the holy place. You need a covering. 
you need you need to have this protective equipment. When you look at the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, actually in Leviticus 16, it calls it Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Atonements, right? And the idea is that there's multiple layers of atonement or covering being made here, and it involves... I mean, this is this is the high priest going into the holiest place on earth, right? The the holiest man on earth is entering the holiest place on earth on the holiest day of the year, encountering the holy God. To get there, he has to go through these layers, these steps of suiting up with this protective equipment, so to speak, layers of atonement, right? It's not just about um, forgiving sin. It's not just about confessing and, and getting your sin covered. It's more than that. It's being able to withstand the experience of God's presence. Without that covering, it is not possible to withstand God's presence. And then, then what happens is they shall kill, he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar. So what, what's the significance of blood here? Thinking of Leviticus chapter 17. Anyone know the verse? The something is in the blood. The life is in the blood. That's right. The life is in the blood. In, in Hebrew, um, it's the nephesh. The nephesh is in the blood. The, literally, you might say soul. But nephesh is more than just what we think of as soul. It's like life force. It's your even like identity, right? So so this, the blood represents life, right? It's all about life. It's not, it's not about the death of the animal primarily. It's about obtaining the life of the animal. That's what's important. And remember, that animal represents you by this stage, right? This is, this is your life being brought to the altar. In ancient thinking, an altar functions as, as kind of like a, a mystic portal between heaven and earth. When, you, when something comes on the altar, it's like it's being transported up to God, right? When you burn something on an altar, it goes from a physical substance sitting there to, you know, all the smoke goes up, its, it's essence all ascends to God, right? And, and the word for burnt offering that's being used in this passage in Hebrew is, is ola, literally means to go up. Something that goes up. Um, so the the Ola, the burnt offering, ascends to God via the altar. The altar functions as this gateway, this this portal leading to the heavens. So what happens when the life of that animal touches that altar? It's that life being brought into God's presence, encountering God's presence, right? And that life represents your life. The primary mechanics of a sacrifice are not, not, not primarily about payment for sin or vicarious suffering or that sort of thing. It's primarily a way of encountering the living God without it killing you physically. <laughs> That's what this is all about. This is about encountering God without it killing you, <laughs> Really. In the context of the Torah's sacrificial system, the blood of the sacrifice is about more than just the forgiveness of sin. Yes, blood is necessary for forgiveness, 
but it is necessary for more than just that. It's necessary to enable us to encounter God. It's necessary so we can have fellowship with him, so we can worship him. And this understanding, I think, helps us appreciate what Yeshua has done for us, because Yeshua's blood grants us uh, uh, cleansing, grants us forgiveness for our sins before God, but his blood also enables us to encounter God and to worship him. It's not just, a, oh, your sins are, are forgiven, there, now go off on your merry way. It's, no, we're brought into fellowship with God through the sacrifice of Yeshua. I think that this is illustrated through the various kinds of offerings mentioned here in Leviticus. Uh, so if you look through the first, you know, six or seven chapters of Leviticus, we, we see all this detailed instruction for different types of offerings. And, and all these different types of offerings can, can really be boiled down to three, three main types of offerings. You've got your, your burnt offering, your sin offering, and your peace offering. This is English translations of particular Hebrew terms. We'll get into some of those Hebrew terms in just a minute, but, but let's, let's work with this for now. Some translations might have different words than these, but this is probably the most common. Burnt offering, sin offering, peace offering. Okay, and each of these teach us something about worship. So let's, let's look at each of these in turn. Burnt offering, first of all. Like I said, this is the Hebrew word ola, means to go up. Right? And in Hebrew, the verb Allah means to ascend. Um, to make Aliyah means to ascend. It, uh, an Aliyah is an ascent, a, a going up. Right? Um, in the Psalms, we have the Psalms of ascent, Shir Hama'alot. That's the same, same verb, Allah, found in there, Ma'alot, goings up, literally. Um, so a burnt offering is unique because it all gets burnt up. It all goes to God, right? The, the priest doesn't get any. You, you as a worshiper don't get any. It, it all goes to God. It's, 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 it's all his. To us moderns, this seems kind of wasteful, right? It's not like you're giving it to the poor or, or, or anything like that, right? It, you know, a modern analogy might be, imagine taking a $500 bill and lighting it on fire. It's kind of like that, right? It's like, but what's the point? Well, that's, that's the point. There, there isn't another point other than this is all for God. It's all for him, right? You know, a, a bull, the, the, the first animal described here in Leviticus 1 is a bull. Uh, a bull in those days was a huge economic investment, right? This would be like taking the family minivan and, and lighting it on fire on the altar, right? Like this, this, was, this was a family source of livelihood of, of uh, you know, uh, how they would uh, plow their fields and things like that. Like this is, this was a big economic investment. A sheep or a goat would not be quite as big of an investment, but it would still be costly, right, uh, for an agrarian society. Uh, even for today, if you were to go and buy a sheep or a goat, that would be, it would be a costly thing to just go and slaughter it and burn it, right, without getting to eat any of it. Uh, a poor person might only be able to afford a pigeon or, or maybe even just grain, or the very poor people, maybe just salt, right? There's a principle in the Torah, never to appear before God empty-handed, there's always something you can bring. Even if you're too poor to, to bring uh, expensive, lavish offering, you can still bring something, right? There's still something you can contribute. 
But I think this concept of the burnt offering tells us something about worship in general, in the sense that worship is wasteful. It's not about what we get out of it. It's about lavishly giving to God, right? Kind of like the uh, alabaster jar of perfume that the woman poured out on Yeshua on his feet, right? And, and the disciples were, were upset. They're like, what waste, right? But that's what worship is. Worship is, is like that in the sense that from a, from a pragmatic standpoint, it seems like a waste. It's a, it's a waste of time. We're not accomplishing anything by worshiping, but that's the point. That's, the worship is not about what we get out of it. As soon as we try to put worship to some sort of utilit- utilitarian service, have, have some practical outcome from it, then we've completely distorted it. We've missed the point. If we try to use worship as, say, a form of outreach or for fundraising or for self-help or, or any time we make it primarily about us rather than about God, we've missed the point. Worship has to be God-focused and not me-focused. So that's one thing that I think the burnt offering teaches us. Then we have the sin offering. Sin offerings. In this category, we can also include guilt offerings, which are essentially a variation of, of the sin offering. But note that sin offerings are not just for sin, but also for cleansing. So for example, after a woman gives birth, she is to bring a sin offering as part of her purification. We read about this in Leviticus 12, and in the Gospel of Luke, it, it talks about how Mary went to the temple to do that and brought two turtle toves or two young pigeons, right? Which gives us a sense that she was, they would have been poor. Joseph and Mary were not wealthy because they could not bring um, the, the lamb. They, they brought what the poor would bring. There's nothing sinful about giving birth, right? So why does she have to bring a sin offering? The new mother doesn't bring a sin offering because she's committed a sin. Rather, it's simply an offering for purification. So that's why some translators suggest we should translate this offering as a purification offering instead of a sin offering. Um, But in either case, the sin offering is used to restore the worshiper to be able to participate in the sacrificial system once again. This speaks to the need for restoration. We cannot worship God without some way of restoring us to him. And I think there's a restorative component within worship itself, right? This is illustrated in the concept of confession. We talked about this in the last session, how one of the words for praise in Hebrew, hoda, can also mean to confess sin, right? So it can mean to, to um, proclaim who, what God has done, but it can also mean to admit what I have done wrong, Right? It's the same word used in both contexts. So worship involves both. Worship involves confessing when we have done wrong and confessing what God has done that's amazing. Without that component of confession, our relationship with God could not be restored. And that's, that's what the sin offering is all about, this, this uh, purification offering, right? You have to bring this confession to God. And I think that's why the apostles ins- insist that confession is necessary for forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, that's describing the sin offering. 
That's, that's a description of the sin offering. It brings forgiveness and it brings cleansing. So, burnt offering, sin offering. Third category to talk about is peace offerings. And this is probably the most common category of offering that someone would bring as an individual. Uh, m- most of the burnt offerings were probably communal offerings. For example, uh, the tamid offering in the morning, late afternoon, a lamb is, is, is brought as a burnt offering. And that's, that happens all the time, perpetually, day after day after day. It's a communal offering. It's not any one person bringing it, but the community as a whole brings that offering. Um, and, and that's the first offering in the day and the last offering of the day is this tamid offering. So all the other offerings, it's like a sandwich. <laughs> You've got tamid and then all the other offerings for the day and then topped by a tamid at the end of the day. And that all gets burnt. Okay, so most burnt offerings were probably communal. So as an individual bringing an offering, it's probably going to be a peace offering that you're bringing. That's going to be the most common type of offering, probably. Uh, This offering is like a feast. Everyone gets a share, right? The, the, The priest gets a portion. There's a portion that's taken on the altar. The fat, the blood goes on the altar. And then the most of the animal you take and you cook and you eat it with your friends. You have a, you have a, a party, right? Some translators suggest we translate this as fellowship offering. And maybe you've seen that in, in some English translations, fellowship offering. And in Hebrew, it's the word shalamim, which is related to the word shalom. That's why the name peace offering got coined, because it sounds like it's related to the word for peace, right? But, but really, it's about, it's about having fellowship, with God and with one another, right? So the thanksgiving offering is is an example of a type of peace offering. If God did something amazing for you, like, like he rescued you from a perilous circumstance where you were sure you were going to die, maybe you were like really sick and right at the point of death and then you recovered, God healed you, you would then bring a thanksgiving offering to the temple or the tabernacle. So let's say you bring a lamb as your, your, as your offering. You would invite all your friends. The priest would take some parts to burn on the altar, take some parts for himself, and then you and your friends would enjoy the rest as this big feast, this big celebration where you proclaim what God did for you. That's an example of, of a, a peace offering, particularly a thanksgiving offering. It's like a fellowship meal with God, having communion with God. This speaks to the fact that even though worship is not all about us, it's not about what we get out of it, but nonetheless, we do get something out of it. Worship is about fellowship with God, communion with him, and that often takes place in the context of fellowship with others. We praise God for who he is and what he has done in the company of others. Okay, so this kind of like a whirlwind tour through some of the sacrifices and how they worked. And we do have to keep in mind that the temple worship was more than just sacrifices, right? The, uh, the instructions we see in Leviticus are, are just the rubrics. These are, these are just like the, the, the physical details. But along with a sacrifice, along with the sacrificial service, um, there, you know, you might have prayer, you might have confession, you might have praise, you might have singing, um, all these other sorts of things going on. So 
we read especially about this in the book of Chronicles, how David set up these choruses of temple musicians. Uh, there are the three main uh, musicians, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, uh, who happen to be also the three main composers of the Psalms, aside from David himself, when we go through the book of Psalms and look who wrote them. Uh, and David uh, organized all these musical instruments for use in the temple, uh, all these different aspects of the temple worship. So this was, this was an elaborate thing. This wasn't just about killing animals. There's, there's, there's prayer, there's singing, there's, there's musical instruments, there's all this stuff going on as part of, part of the worship. And, and the book of Psalms, is like this is the temple hymnal, right? These are, these are the kinds of songs that they would sing in the temple um, along with the offerings. Some of the Psalms actually say uh, what offerings they belong to. So you can take a look at Psalm 100 as an example. It's a psalm for Todah. Thanksgiving. Todah is the name of a type of offering, the Thanksgiving offering. So this is this, perhaps the song that you could sing when you bring a Thanksgiving offering. You sing Psalm 100. So we see this sort of thing uh, throughout. So you imagine worshiping the, in the temple at the height of its glory, right, in Solomon's temple. Within, you know, you've got, you've got the, the offerings that are brought. And, and by the way, the, the uh, process for, you know, slitting the animal's throat, um, flaying them, putting them on the altar and all that was done very efficiently and very cleanly. It was a clean place. It wasn't like, filthy, dirty all over the place, right? Um, and there would be the Levitical choir there with their, their, the singers, the instruments. Um, you've got all the worshipers coming together, praising God together, and there's the visible manifest presence of God there, the cloud of glory that everyone can see. I mean, that would be an amazing experience. Now, the sad part is that Israel often took the temple for granted, right? There came this idea, sadly, that because God's temple was in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was invincible, and that God would never let his temple be destroyed, and that we, as God's people, can commit whatever sins we want because cheap grace. We've got the temple. I want to look at a couple places where we see the prophets especially rebuking the people for presuming that they can walk in disobedience, breaking God's covenant, and yet bring their sacrifices of praise and do their corporate worship stuff and think everything's just fine. Everything is not fine. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 1. Let's start in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What a, what a way to, to call Israel, huh? It's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough 
of burnt offerings of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or goats and lambs. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What happens here, what we see here in this passage, is a disconnect that the people had between the corporate, intentional, public forms of worship and the private, habitual, personal worship. They had... They were not serving God in their private lives and thought that they could still come into the temple and worship God corporately and publicly and that it would be all okay. God says he hates that. Let's look at another example. The book of Amos, chapter 5. Start at verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You know, I think this is a sobering message for us because this applies to any corporate form of worship. This is not, as sadly has been misunderstood, an attack against sacrifices, saying God doesn't want sacrifices, he just wants you to sing praises to him. That's the opposite of what this passage says. God says he hates the sound of your guitars and your drum sets and your keyboards. When your inner worship is out of sync with your public worship, coming together and worshiping as a body, as of believers, singing songs to him. I mean, God delights in this when our hearts are with him. But if our hearts are far from him, it means nothing. God hates it when we go through the motions of public corporate worship, but fail in our personal worship, when we fail to submit our lives to him in obedience, and when we fail to humbly serve him on a daily basis. Like we talked about in session two, we cannot separate our personal worship from our corporate worship. The two have to go together. We have to have both. So I want to wrap it up there. Um, the one last verse that we can use to close is Romans 12.1. 
I think is fitting given all that we've been talking about with sacrifices. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the, sacrif- the sacrificial system in the Torah, I think, is important for us in the ways it, in what it teaches us about what it means to worship God. But they're more than just an allegory, right? Uh, yes, there, there's, there's that too. There's, we can read them as, as an allegory of worship, right? What does it mean to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? Well, this, this gives us a picture of that. But, but they were, they're also, the sacrifices are a form of worship in their own right. Um, they're not something we can apply today, obviously, because of we, we don't have a temple today. But the principles behind the sacrificial system still sa- stand. We need atonement. We need that covering in order to withstand experiencing God's presence And our covering can only come through Yeshua. And through Yeshua, we're able to offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices, as those who are able to have that encounter with God and survive it. (laughs) And we, we submit ourselves completely to him at his disposal and acknowledge that he is the one to whom it all belongs. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that you have given us your word as a guide for our lives, that we can trust you, that your word is true. Thank you for what you have done for us through the sacrifice of your son, Yeshua. Thank you for bringing us into fellowship with you. Help us to live our lives in submission to you. Help us to have our personal, private life of service to you be in sync with what you have called us to do, that our corporate times of worship together would be meaningful and pleasing in your sight. Thank you for all this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.